Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Box podcast. Uh, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, uh, hello, my name is Wolf. Uh, I'm living in Germany now in Berlin and I work at a small software company called Quantstack. Mm-hmm. And I studied robotics and I'm still working in robotics, specifically cloud robotics right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of my previous projects were the Beachbot, which uh, used to draw large-scale pictures on the sand, and there was a Disney research. Mm-hmm. And then I did a master thesis in artificial intelligence and robotics on the topic of autonomous cars and predictive behavior. And now I'm mainly working on open source libraries for C++. I work a lot with ROS, the robot operating system, and all of these tools around mm-hmm. robots. Great. So I would like to ask you, back when you're a child, uh, he was raised a Japanese to say that since I was a child, I never like looked at the wax figures, and somewhat looks at Cree before him. When you were a child, have you ever heard about robot and what you feel about it? So to me, I think when I was a kid, I was um, reading mainly uh, science magazines, mm. and I got into contact with robots from that perspective and from popular culture and I don't think robots were creepy to me mm-hmm. I think I was always enjoying mechanical uh, machines and I think there was a great deal of like excitement about robots mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when was the first time you built a robot do you remember what you saw the first time yeah, the first time I built a robot, um, that the first real robot I would say was this was this beach boat that I was mentioning earlier. Mm-hmm. That was really an autonomous uh, device, and before it was mainly doing things like Lego techniques and all of this and small small machines mm-hmm. more than robots. Mm-hmm. So how you define so robotics? That was during yeah. My studies. yeah. So how you define robotics from your perspective? For me, a robot would be a machine that's uh, somewhat autonomous, and in the best case, it would be relieving us humans from some task that we don't want to do, for example, cleaning up the dishes or stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, a real robot, like the thing that needs to differentiate it from a mere machine would be the intelligence in it, the, the, the ability to react to external circumstances that it hasn't seen before in that same sense. Mm-hmm. So when you work on the robotics, how, how you see the progress of robotics in the last 10 years? Um, I would say in a way, it, it seems that we've come quite a long way. Mm-hmm. For example, if you look at the machines that have been built 50 years ago or 100 years ago, they were definitely not as advanced as today. But on the other hand, if one goes back and looks at prototypes from 30 years ago, then they look almost similar to machines that are just being commercialized now from startups everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it seems that a lot of the work that's being done right now in robotics at least for commercialized robotics, is to make robots more reliable and try to really uh, work on uh, figuring out how to make these machines work 100 or 99% of the time instead of just 80% of the time, which might be the case in academia. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also work being done in, the, in terms of standardizing interfaces and standardizing um, yeah, the software that runs the robots. Mm-hmm. So could you please tell us more about your, your recent work in Constack? Because I think you really focusing on something important on geometry uh, modeling and, and th- in this regard, can you please tell us more about that? So our recent work in Quantstack, um for robotics, we tried to, yeah, we've released a library that's called Psychic Geometry. Mm-hmm. So, Psychogeometry is a library that 
uh, is open source completely, mm -hmm. and that has a bunch of geometric types yeah. that you can use to basically um, compute properties or compute intersections of lines, compute polygons, ex extrude polygons into 3D, uh, do all kinds of geometric computations to yeah, which is very useful in robotics if you want to, for example, if you have a map that is somewhat polygonal and you want to figure out where you can go with your robot and so on and react on your environment. Mm -hmm. And wh so what's that's the, yeah. psychic geometry. Yeah, and what's the limitation or challenges you still have to solve with the team? Challenges or limitation? Uh, additional challenges for psychic geometry, um, we need to solve the challenges of speeding up psychogeometry even to make it even faster to make it work even better in real world scenarios where you have lots of data streaming through mm -hmm. um yeah Great. other projects that we've worked on in respect to robotics with constact is a library called extensor that's a c plus library for numeric computations mm -hmm. and there's also a project called jupyter ross which allows you to use Jupyter Notebooks, which is an interactive computing environment, yeah. uh, to control robots from mm -hmm. within the web browser and have 3D visualizations of the robot and the uh, robot state and so on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, great. So I would like to ask you, when you look at these robots and you're developing these tools, what do you think the most misconceptions you see in robotics or artificial intelligence and something could be concerning for you? That's a very good question. The most misconceptions, I would say, for example, people might think that um, doing robotics is, is easy nowadays, mm -hmm. but I think it's still very hard because the amount of data, for example, is very large and uh, some of the problems that seem to be solved, for example, if you uh, use augmented reality mm -hmm. from your cell phone, you might think that, you know, having stereo vision or having 3D vision is easy nowadays. But in fact, I still believe that it's quite tough to solve certain problems. And I see that in my day-to-day -day job that um, things mm -hmm. that might seem to work nicely on a smartphone, they don't always work as reliable as necessary to ensure um, robots to work reliable in, the, in complex environments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So if I ask you what could be the most important question, like when you develop this tool, like say geometry M, what do you consider like most important questions to meet the requirement for people working on robotic research or AI, how you make sure this criteria is meeting their needs? you develop a tool? When we develop a tool, I think what we try to we try to solve at Quantstack at least we try to solve a general problem and we try to really build uh, tools for developers and not tools for specific use case if mm -hmm. we can somehow avoid it. And psychogeometry really is such a tool in the same sense as SciPy or uh, Scikit um, Image or Scikit Learn are mm -hmm. general tools that are to be used by developers and not by end users. So our customers usually, mm -hmm. or our like, I don't know, open source community members yeah. are not uh, people who, who want an end product, but those are people who um, yeah, want to build projects out of what we give them. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, we always try to make nice API interfaces to our libraries and to make sure that they work well together, they work well in different contexts. Yeah. And I think it's really important to think about how you can build tools that enable others to build end products. And building tools, it's, it's much more difficult, but it's also much more rewarding when you see that these developer tools are used in many, many projects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm curious to ask you how you would see intelligence in general in robotics. So what is intelligence? Um, 
Intelligence and robotics, I would say, so from my perspective, the intelligence is the ability to react to really unforeseen or un to, to circumstances that have not been as explicitly programmed into mm -hmm. the robot uh, and to react to them in a way that's coherent to a human observer, basically. So if, if you view uh, from the outside how a robot reacts to some new circumstance, it should somehow be logically explainable why the robot decided to do that. And if the robot is able to react to, in a logically coherent way to yeah. any kind of circumstance, then I would say that's an intelligent machine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what do you think are the most important factors? Is like the the brain, like uh, the, the AI algorithm or just uh, the robot's shapes? Because we, I think one of the important issues, especially in robotics and compliant robotics as well, uh, the shape and how it, uh, how it behaves. So I don't know how, how you see the intelligence mostly come from. Mm, I, I mean, I, I, I do think the shape and the brain are the factors that need to work together. So the shape needs to be adapted to the environment that the robot is in, just like the shape of humans or animals is adapted mm -hmm. to the environment that we are usually exposed to. and. Intelligence is something that that's kind of disjoint from the shape, mm -hmm. but you know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So uh, d about emotions, have you ever think about integrating emotion um, and robotics? Because there is some researchers say that robots ca can be designed to feel the pain. Do you agree with that, or there's something not realistically that we have robots can feel pain? Yeah, I, I, I think emotions can be integrated into robots. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that it's going to be something that will be a very interesting menu in the future to see how robots can, can have emotions. And I also see, for example, in educational robots that mm -hmm. you have smiling faces, that you have blinking eyes and stuff like this, and those yeah already convey some sort of emotion with a pretty simple interface, to be honest. And on a, on a different level, if you watch YouTube videos of, um, for example, the Boston Dynamics dog-like robots, yeah. you, you can see the reactions of the YouTube, uh, in the YouTube comments where people are saying, don't kick the robot and, yeah. and so on. So the robot, when it gets kicked, it evades in such a way that it evokes some sort of strong feeling in us humans mm -hmm. because we kind of project some sort of life into that robot even though it's just a machine and mm -hmm. that's also a way i guess to convey emotions or i don't know attach emotions to a robot mm -hmm. uh, but do you think that case because you, i think that's point highlighted uh, do you think that robots must have like uh, like robots law to that human can should respect uh, robots. Do you think there's something necessary, or it doesn't make any sense? Uh, that we assign that if I don't, it's a difficult question. I mean, robots, mm, they don't. We don't really need to show respect to the robots. Mm -hmm. I mean, we should probably show respect to the property of others, mm -hmm. in the sense that we don't, I don't know, destroy a robot that belongs to someone else, but. Um, as long as the robot is a machine, and I think we should treat it as a machine and not as a as a living being. Yeah. Uh, the question is when when does it cross over? When does a robot when is a robot more than just a machine? Uh, I that's a very difficult question. I think, mm -hmm. and I guess it's something that's also subjective. So I don't. I think if a robot is able to fake well enough to be a, a living being, then maybe at that point it, it is already a living being. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In that sense. So if I ask you what something consider mind-blowing and scary in robotics, any robots you have seen in industry or academia was mind-blowing yeah. or scary? I think, 
I would like to answer this question in a more general way. I, I think I find it mind-blowing how quickly we, as like humans, are reaching a new status quo where we just accept things as working that haven't been working a couple of years ago. For mm -hmm. example, if you look at how people use their phones nowadays, mm -hmm. how we just accept how connected we are to the internet everywhere we go, yeah. or how we can just talk to our phones and get a, get a response out of them phone or or how SpaceX rockets can just land on their feet nowadays with a and that's normal now. So that's something I, I consider mind blowing that, that we are reaching these mm -hmm. new stages of development so quickly. And scary. And then also accept them. Yeah. So quickly. And a scary one. Scary I think in robotics, I don't see a very scary development in robots themselves, but maybe what I find more scary is how how so much data is being collected and processed and how mm. much power certain small or large corporations mm -hmm. could potentially have over our daily lives. Mm -hmm. That's concerning point, yeah. So we will get to this point, but I would like to ask you first for designing robotics, because do you agree that simulation sometimes can really predict what's happening in, in, in reality, a real life scenario? Because sometimes you have limitation in simulation uh, tool. Uh, how do you think about simulation to reality? Is it really a challenging, still challenging, or we have a, a good uh, achievement in this aspect? Um, if we can have a simulation that is basically mimicking reality 100%? Yeah. Is that the question? Yeah. Do you think this is uh, already uh, solved or just do we have a, a gap to solve this issue? I think simulation at least uh, from a robotics developer perspective, are very important. Yeah. We need to have simulations that are as accurate as possible to the real world, but they are still very challenging for our current computational mm -hmm. resources. However, I can imagine a future where we have simulations that are perfect, which yeah. will also make it difficult to figure out whether we are in a simulation or whether we are in the real world. Oh, that's interesting point. So we are in a simulation. What do you think about this one? Um, I know that's like a philosophical debate. Uh, yeah. I think it's something that we, that's impossible to decide for us. Uh, Who decide? Since all we have is our pretty limited sensory inputs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's uh, sophisticated. But yeah, as soon Mm -hmm. As soon as yeah, you reach this point where the simulation becomes indiscernible from the real world, then mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that's, that's going to be a very interesting time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, I would like to ask you about the challenges that you would like to solve now or challenges you have in your work and you're still working on. Yeah. So in our day-to-day -day job or in my day-to-day -day job, I'm... Our challenges are basically on how to build communities mm -hmm. around certain software, how to make sure that our software is useful for as many people as possible, and how to figure out um, how we can live from building open source tools and open source develop developer tools, basically. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then in my free time, Another question that I'm very concerned with is how we can, so we have a lot of open data right now yeah. also. For example, there's open street maps and there's also Wikidata and Wikipedia and all of these, and there's a lot of knowledge mm -hmm. basically. And uh, the, I would like to figure out ways how we can make this knowledge more searchable, how we can make this knowledge more accessible yeah. and more free so that many more people can benefit from this knowledge. Mm -hmm. which currently is in some databases and databases are great but they are 
mainly useful for developers. Mm -hmm. What people need is to have a way to search these databases and figure out things. Mm -hmm. And what could be a solution for that? Who is accusing this problem and what, how we can solve it? Sorry, I didn't catch the beginning of the uh, question. How, how this problem can be solved and what is the root because of this issue that this data is not accessible for all the people developer? How ca other people can access yeah. it? So right now, I think one of the problems is that obviously there is already a very good search engine out there, and which is Google and a bunch of others that compete. Uh, none of those are free search engines. And we don't know um, what data that exists they are showing to us and what data that exists they're not showing to us. So, but on the other hand, they are good enough for most of the people and they work well. So the problem is that there's almost no incentive for other people mm -hmm. to switch to, for example, a search engine that might be worse at the beginning, but then it relies on free data or free software. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to solve that. I mean, I think there can only be a step-by-step -step mm -hmm. solution to this where one creates a community of people who are interested in solving these problems and who see a problem in the beginning um, and then work together to create some new and cool solutions to this. Mm -hmm. So concerning the trust and, uh, and making sure that it developed like tools is reliable. If we speak about uh, the sky geometry, how, how you make sure that the tool is reliable? Of course, there is Git and you have to this development, but when you have like a the tool to publish to users, how we make sure it's reliable? And um, concerning robotics, do you think we trust robotics as well and AI tools developed or we still have issue of trust? As you can see from a few days ago, there are German artists using a couple of iPhones to make a, tra uh, a fake traffic jam. I, I think you heard about that. Yeah, I heard about it. Yeah, and this is something about the trust as well, the app. So yeah, how we think about this? Yeah, I think, I mean, humans are convinced as long as things are working and mm -hmm. humans are also very quick at figuring out when something is not working. Uh, and with our modern communication tools, we have ways to to tell other people very quickly if something is working or if something is not working. For example, I don't know, if if there was some virus here in Germany, mm -hmm. then people would probably go to Twitter and tell everyone that there is a virus in Germany mm -hmm. and soon everybody would know, even though maybe some sort of government would try to hide it. Yeah. And the same is probably true for Google Maps. For example, if we figure out that Google Maps is not routing traffic through a street where there's no traffic, then yeah. people would be very quick at figuring that out. And so uh, in that sense, I think we have this sort of safety net where we still have enough observations to be able to trust the autonomous systems that mm -hmm. are given to us, basically, and mm -hmm. the artificial intelligence. And we can pretty easily observe if something is working or not. I mean, there are different cases where for example, if you look at breast cancer screening, yeah, which is one of the things that, at least in Germany, there's now a software which is authorized to be used in or the clinical trials or something like this. Mm -hmm. So you can have autonomous breast cancer screening, more or less. I mean, it's it gives you a recommendation or it tells you if some someone is likely to have breast cancer or not. Yeah. So there we put more trust into the machine and we cannot easily observe if what the machine gives us is correct or not. Mm -hmm. And so we rely on a doctor as well to to tell us if we should trust this machine or not. Mm -hmm. and I think there it becomes a bit more difficult to figure out uh, how much trust we should give these mm -hmm. algorithms. That's very interesting. But I think uh, just while like a skew, do you think that any significant decision shouldn't be on Muslims delegated by a robot or a machine. Do you, do you agree with this or just to still, as you said, we don't know to which percent we have to trust machine? I, I 
think humans will start trusting a machine if they see it working reliable and if they see enough examples of, for example, others trusting the machine and and being successful mm -hmm. from whatever this machine is doing. Mm -hmm. So do you agree that like self-driving cars, for example, some people uh, argue that it's just... Yeah, so yeah. I think that's actually a very good example. So self-driving cars. Uh, I think for me, the big eye-opener was that um, one of the ma major things in self-driving cars has to be the user interface. So you need to, for example, see on the screen what the self-driving car perceives mm -hmm. in order to trust it. So when you look at, for example, the screen on the Tesla, you will see that it always shows you um, the cars that surround you, or rather what the self-driving car algorithm perceives as the cars around, around it. Mm -hmm. And when you observe as a human user that these are the cars that the self-driving car perceives and you can verify with your eyes that that's actually the cars that are around you, then you begin to um, gain trust in that system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the user interface is very important, I think, in order to make systems trustworthy. Mm -hmm. I think there's a very interesting point about, I think because many researchers highlighted that they have an issue about user interaction, how the machine user interaction design is it simple or sophisticated yeah. i think you have this experience so could you tell us more about how you make sure that uh, this human uh, or machine user interaction is simple to interact with and uh, engage with because sometimes we have complex apps that you can't really engage I think it's very important to do a lot of research into user interfaces mm -hmm. and into things that engineers are probably not very good with, actually. Yeah. Uh, to figure out uh, how to communicate results, for example, or how to communicate sensor data yeah. to, a, to a user without um, overloading the user with information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's probably where also quite a bit of investment should go, basically, on a, on a global scale. Yeah, yeah. So when you work with, when you speak with your family or friends about what you're doing or robotics AI or the tool you develop, are they interested in and how you deliver what you're working in a simple way? It's always a little bit difficult to uh, explain that to my family. Why? But, um, I think if I try to explain them, I would tell them that we try to build yeah, general tools for, like, a, we basically, we build the screwdrivers for, mm -hmm. uh, for computers. Okay. <laughs> so we build tools for others to mm -hmm. build things on the computer. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is no kind of discussion, like, like kids or families big but what robotics is what AI is any kind of discussion is going on around these topics is, is they are interested or not or you haven't asked them i think i would discuss it in a in a way that i don't think ai is uh, really a threat right now mm -hmm. uh, at least in itself and that there's a lot of AI already around exactly. us. I mean, as yeah. I already mentioned, all the text-to-speech or speech-to-text interfaces are nowadays probably yeah. powered yeah. by some AI. Um, and I would show them some of the robots that that are around and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tell so, them that yeah. that's potentially something that I would also work on. Yeah, yeah. Small parts of it. Mm -hmm. So if you can summarize to us what, what the challenges could face AI algorithms since most of them, that's issue we all know that the bias algorithm and there's few tech leaders company who really monopolize the markets with their algorithms. So how do you see this issue and what could be the challenging that you can share it with our audience? I guess in, uh, in popular culture or in yeah. the tech circles, 
there has been quite some discussions about biased uh, AI algorithms where, for example, since you are training artificial intelligence on some sort of data that you've collected or that you've annotated, and if that data is not representative of the entire population, then the resulting algorithm is definitely going to be biased. Mm -hmm. And there is a certain level of awareness of this, I think, nowadays. And we definitely have to work more. Yeah. And we should probably also work collaboratively. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm very interested in is also how we can collaborate on, for example, collecting data sets mm -hmm. that are hopefully unbiased, so that represent a large population, for example. Mm -hmm. If I have a weird accent, I, I mean, if I speak English, but I have a strong accent, I don't know, German accent, mm -hmm. then maybe right now a speech-to-text interface doesn't pick my accent up. Mm -hmm. But there are projects, for example, from Mozilla, where they have the, um, I just forgot what it's called, but uh, the Mozilla project, where they co the Common Voice project, where they collect speech samples from all over the world for any kind of language. And I think those projects are just phenomenal because everybody can collaborate on generating this data set, mm -hmm. which hopefully is as unbiased as possible, even though obviously right now probably English is still the largest percentage of voices there. Yeah, yeah. So when you expect this could be like solved, that we don't have any biased data and you have access to the data, how many years do you expect? I think we can expect this to be solved when when AI is super mainstream and also when a lot of people... Uh, I mean, I guess in a way it's the market who's, which is going to solve it, which is... Mm -hmm. Or which at the moment is probably the driving force behind all of this. So mm -hmm. companies go where the money is, so they will go where the big populations are and they will solve the problems for the big populations. and. Then for the minorities, it's always going to be a bit harder and it will come later. Mm -hmm. And that's also where we probably need some sort of government regulation or maybe governments pushing things like data sets for, for AI. Mm -hmm. So if the governments would decide to make a data set that includes uh, voice examples from any kind of, um, you know, different subpopulation or minorities, then yeah. We could have a much more diverse uh, sample size. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's uh, really an issue, since some governments yeah. still feel still behind the technology, and that's why it's it's really an issue as well. So I agree with you. So <laughs> I have a question for you: I mean, how to ensure that robotics is going to be beneficial to humanity as a whole, whether in academia, whether in industry? how we can make sure that the tools or algorithms or robotics we develop is really beneficial to humans. How you see it and how we make sure this happen, generally. Yeah, so I think one of my personal big hopes has always been that open source mm -hmm. uh, is something that helps make at least software uh, be usable yeah and for everyone basically make it free to distribute it and copy it and you know because it is actually free i guess with robotics it's more difficult because there you need to you need to have the hardware to build your robot for example mm -hmm. if you want to make personal robots free yeah and the other problem is that right now the person who is going to buy a robot is the person who has already money and who already has a factory. Mm -hmm. So it's not clear whether a worker is immediately going to benefit from a robot because it's not clear whether the robot is working with the worker or mm -hmm. if it's going to replace the worker and if the worker is going to find a new job or not. Mm. And I think that's kind of the critical question, and that's also where governments, again, probably need to regulate somehow, mm -hmm. that we find solutions for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a way, I mean, obviously, the good thing would be if all of our boring jobs are done by robots, but in another way, it would not be very good if 
we don't have any works any work anymore for a large yeah. population. I think this is very interesting why because we have this question all the time and how we make sure that the yeah. developed robots in the long run or these tools in the long run wouldn't lead to social inequality and that's a question we have all the time uh, and everyone asks me this question and some uh, researchers say that they really don't concern it that there is social inequality because when the technology comes there is new jobs coming however on the other side we mm. see that people outside this field with robotics or AI or digital market in, in general will not find a job and I, I don't know what you think yeah, about I, these two I, debates it's like a debate some people say that and others say that because of course we see robotics now in, in supermarkets or malls they have the job that people can have it and these people doesn't have the qualities for working in, in tech sector for example so that's two different debates I don't know which one do you think is really maybe right yeah it's a it's a very very interesting question and also i mean it's definitely a political question and mm -hmm. it's also probably impossible to answer <laughs> yeah but as a debate i i do i do i'm kind of fearful i guess because mm -hmm. i do see that there's an issue with with also jobs that are not mm -hmm. uh, you know jobs for for workers but also jobs for people who have studied are being probably somewhat threatened at least by mm. by artificial intelligence mm -hmm. um, what I believe is that what we should do is make education as widely accessible as possible mm -hmm. and as free as possible so I think things like massive open online courses and these kind of things are wonderful and we should push them as far as possible and reach everyone mm. and make sure that everybody can has access to the best education possible yeah with our new technology and maybe that can help ease this transition at least for the future yeah. generations yeah i think this i mean is, yeah. within this yeah yeah an industry yeah with the industrial revolution there were similar shifts probably but now yeah this time it might be different, but who knows? Yeah. I think humans have always found a way. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting also. And I think you highlighted interesting point about that people have to be like aware and because when you have tools like deepfake, for example, and others, it is something I think really worrying if we we really want, we're not aware about these tools and how it work. So I think this is a threat also to people's privacy as well. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree that it's worrying and there's nothing we can do right now to stop it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it will be harder in the future to trust things that you see online, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that will be a big comeback for for living in a village <laughs> and knowing all your neighbors or something like this. Oh, that's interesting. Or we figure out other ways. Okay, <laughs> so uh, do you think, and uh, if we speak like 10 years coming 10 years, do you think that AI algorithms, because it's now everything is, is really automated, and do you think how much percentage they can control our life? Because it's a freaking now that when you see people attached to phones, but how do you see this is going to be controlling us? Do you think they will be controlling us? No. No. Mm -hmm. I I think humans are too smart. <laughs> okay. To be easily controlled. Okay. At least individually. Mm -hmm. But um, you don't have this concern. How much control they can I mean I, our lives. I maybe I didn't catch who is going to control us. I mean I think some companies at least they have the possibility to control our beliefs to a certain extent and mm -hmm. that's very dangerous for sure mm -hmm. um yeah that's also something where i think the open source community has been fighting for a long time now mm -hmm. to make sure that it doesn't happen that you don't have a monopoly on on certain technologies and so on yeah yeah so concerning the developing uh, apps and I, i'm interested to to know your opinion about the apps for 
coping with loneliness and helping elderly people as well. I think this is a huge issue we have already around the world. Do you think this kind of uh, solving solving risk apps for this problem is really achieving uh, a good progress for people's health and, and coping with loneliness? Or do you think we still need a lot of work like on video robots as well? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's also an interesting question. I, I do think that people potentially can project as much love to a robot as they would maybe to a cat or maybe even to a different, mm. another human. Uh, I think many elderly people, for example, they get a cat or they get mm. a dog uh, that they love a lot. Yeah. And I think maybe in the future that could be a robot instead. Mm-hmm. And the robot could also be programmed to answer intelligently, to um, exhibit some sort of behavior or some emotions and all of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's also a bit of a dystopian idea. <laughs> because mm. after all, the robot is not a living thing. And yeah. yeah. And that's interesting because we have the I, question. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm unsure what to make of it. I mean, I think it could have good effects, but it could also have negative effects. It's yeah, very difficult. That's very interesting because when we see like in uh, the human, we have the question: Can really develop emotion to a robot-like movie here? Uh, this may be dystopian image that is not true, of course, maybe. And also, when we ha- see people develop robots like sleeping robots that develop you to sleep and mimic voice of your loving one, or I don't know, do you think this something can, can really can really replace human? You said no, but if we speaking that, uh, what could be the element can be added to robots so that it can resemble human? Because that's need another question about the soul inside a robot. Um, I th- I think I can imagine a world where a robot will react equal equally to a human, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if I believe in a soul for humans. I believe in certain neurological responses, probably, and mm-hmm. I think a robot could probably perfectly emulate them. Maybe mm-hmm. not today, maybe not in 50 years, maybe in 100 or in 1,000 years. And once that happens, the robot has probably as much soul as we have, mm-hmm. whatever that soul means. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think for the foreseeable futures, humans will prefer other humans. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you heard about Soul Machine, uh, the company in, in, uh, in uh, New Zealand. Have you heard about this uh, company, Soul Machine? I haven't, I haven't heard about it, actually. Yeah, but they, they do, like, um, they have more like a baby or a human and take pictures to try to have the feature of you and then create a different scenario, like laughing or mimic or crying it's it's creepy and interesting as well because it's it sounds really real to a human being but mm-hmm. it just is like a simulated avatar so yeah so that's that was interesting also to to see but it sounds creepy as well so if i ask you if yeah, yeah. I, I think we'll have these developments and i think we'll have probably elderly care robots Mm. And I don't know if you've if you've seen the recent advertisement for the Super Bowl by Google. Yeah, they were basically advertising um, their human language services for mm. for elder people to remind themselves of their loved ones and stuff like this. So it's mm. already starting to to take a place probably in our lives that we have technologies that also kind of. Mm-hmm. have this human element where yeah they're supposed yeah. to mirror some qualities of humans and help us and and i don't know remind yeah. us be with us mm-hmm. yeah be emotionally attached to them mm-hmm. 
So if someone now interested to have a startup, for example, and developing a tool, listening to us, what do you think the most important factors to have a successful startup in this, uh, in this field? Uh, I think if you, yeah. you want to make a successful company right now, it's probably always best to focus on a small problem and do mm. it right. And um, yeah, work, try to produce exceptional products mm -hmm. and yeah and mm -hmm. try to get influences from a lot of old companies or young companies or experiments that have failed try to combine as many fields as you can and try to get as many ideas as possible from different areas yeah yeah so if i ask you where the innovation mostly comes from to be innovative and designing yeah. new tools yeah. or for projects I, I believe that innovation is actually not this like one genius moment, but it's rather like an iterative process mm -hmm. that takes place on a global scale at this point. And even if you think something is completely new, someone before has probably done something similar. And a lot of innovation comes from, from iterating on what has been there before, mm -hmm. trying to make it better trying to make it faster or more accessible mm -hmm. and also trying to combine different fields, uh, take ideas from one field and um, apply them to a different field. Mm -hmm. I think for me, that's where innovation or the key to innovation lies. Mm -hmm. So do you think in the future that robots and or tools and a human can really get along with each other? Because it's like maybe competitive or be cooperative. It depends how it will be in even workplace or, or no one knows how it will be for sure. Do you think they can get along or will be some people doesn't really because human with human sometimes we have struggles and communication as well. So how you see this kind of integration human and robot in workplace one day? I think um Humans and robots will get along quite fine. I mm -hmm. think um, maybe just the same way people think that cars are cool, uh, people might think at some point that robots are cool and they might have their robot companions or robot machines mm -hmm. and work on them and modify them and, you know, mm -hmm. be excited about them. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think that robots will completely replace humans mm -hmm. because humans are pretty good <laughs> in many things. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, mm -hmm. I so, think mm -hmm. robots will always, probably always remain collaborative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, right. So do you have any robots at your home? I, we do have one open source uh, robotics arm, mm -hmm. it's a 60 robot arm, which is called the Neo U1. Mm -hmm. That's a, a fun educational robot, actually, it's not really a yeah. robot. Mm -hmm. And I could imagine buying one of those uh, vacuum cleaner robots, they seem mm -hmm. to be pretty useful. Yeah. And that would be a job that I would like to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> now, what kind of robots you would imagine? like we want to have in the future yeah. any kind of robots you would love to have in your home in, in the future yeah. um, I think there are certain things that I, s I still do like to do for example cooking mm -hmm. um, but a robot that would have, for example do my laundry that would be great <laughs> okay so in the next 100 years, what do you think, what the thing you wish for humanity can do? Yeah, I, I, I wish, my wish for humanity would be to basically end uh, needless suffering. Mm -hmm. So for example, I don't think anybody should nowadays die from hunger or something mm. like this. Yeah. And I would like to make, as I already mentioned before, education should be as accessible as possible for everyone. Yeah, that's two good yeah, points. I yeah. think that's true. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I ask you about the ego, do you think ego is important 
for the developer since you are developing patch tools for your robotics. Do you think ego is important? Sorry, I, I didn't catch the question. Do, do you think ego, the ego is important yeah. for the developer and when he's working and developing new tools? I think at least in open source, or I think generally, uh, ego uh, in the sense of being proud of what you're doing and in the sense of feeling uh, accomplishment and getting respect from mm -hmm. others is something that motivates people. And in that sense, I think it's good. Mm -hmm. But I do believe, if, I mean, obviously, if you have too much ego, if you're arrogant or not kind to others, then that's definitely a bad trait. And mm -hmm. um, you will probably not be a good researcher. Yeah. So I would like to see which most inspiring book you have ever read. So the audio is cutting out right now. Oh, okay. My side. Uh, yeah. What is the most inspiring book you have ever read? Um, the most inspiring book. I think a book that taught me quite a lot is uh, called Nathan Wise. Mm -hmm. I'm actually not sure what the translation is because we read it in German. Mm -hmm. And it teaches you about uh, being tolerant um, towards other religions, for example, uh -huh. in this case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we are coming to the end. I would like to ask if anyone wanted to be a developer, what are the main important qualities to be an ex excellent developer? <laughs> I think if you want to be a developer, a really good thing to start out with is to be curious mm -hmm. and to find open source projects and contribute to them. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the excellent developers that I meet, they have a bit of an obsessiveness about what they're doing and they really like what they're doing. And yeah, if you can develop this kind of passion mm -hmm. for something then I think you'll be a good developer okay so lastly what are the best advice was given to you with a person professionally and was like a lucky changing for you um, yeah I think one of the one of the things that I kept in my mind was this phrase that a mathematics professor once told us is mm -hmm. that there's no free lunch and I think that somehow stuck with me because yeah, even if you gain something, uh, you should also be mindful of the things that you kind of mm -hmm. might lose or give away. Mm -hmm. Also in the context of what we've discussed before, that even if we reach some sort of like high level of artificial intelligence and there might be some downsides that we need to consider carefully. Yeah, that's an inspiring point. So I would like to see at the end if you have any final words to robotics community would like to share. I'm very excited for the next 10 years and mm -hmm. what kind of robot we'll have in our households and mm -hmm. in what ways they will influence or like make our lives better and more interesting. Mm -hmm. So thank you. At the end of podcast and Bob IEEE Soft Robotics CC. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.